the two parties probably sometime in the last 20 years, don't know when, entered into this unholy alliance. I give you all of your party, you give me all of mine. We'll carve up the districts accordingly. And when I'm running, I don't have to worry about competing for the vote of the other party because I got to lock in my own district. More importantly, I don't even have to worry about the centrist in my own party. I have to worry about the party extremes. If I'm on one side, it's the left. On the other side, it's the right. But these are the single-issue ideologues who it, are not reflective of the body politic. But boy, who they vote. Now, the, 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 the counter theory, at least, would be absolutely that's exactly what's happened in the House of Representatives, but that as a candidate for the Senate, you, you have to pay attention to a broader constituency. That's and true. But, but think about the fact that, and, and the House, my House friends will kill me for saying this, but think about the House as a farm team for the Senate. If you think about that way, look how many people run for the House, get elected, establish a reputation. This is what I did. I ran for the Senate for six years in Tennessee, got elected to the Senate, and all of a sudden that attitude that affects people and the composition of their value system and their philosophical approach to campaigning is set in the house where they had to focus and worry about the people on their ideological extremes. And what's happening is that two parties are being drawn further and further apart. Now it's interesting because both you and Senator Dole served in the house before we went into the Senate. And we were both national chairmen. <laughs> What's different between the two bodies? And um, uh, did you ever have any doubt when you went into the House that you'd like at some point to be in the Senate? Is that a natural progression? Uh, it was fairly natural for me because I was the new kid on the block. I was the first Republican to be elected in my district in Tennessee. And Within two years, uh, Estes Kefauver for seat was available, and people were asking me to run. And I said, "I'm not ready yet." I was going, and I was going to wait uh, for another six years, as it turned out. But people were talking about me running for the Senate almost immediately because I was the first breakout. I mean, Tennessee has, you know, these first two districts over in the east part of the state wow. that it always had Republicans. But the rest of the state had always sent Democrats, and to have somebody break out of that, you became the obvious, you know, conversation piece. And what year were you first elected? 1962. Oh boy, you were an early bird. I was uh, an early bird. I was 31, and <laughs> you know, the, when I decided to run, my the, the people that had any sense about politics said, "Come on, Bill, yeah, you know." run for the state house and then maybe for the state senate in a few years and then then for congress and I said man I'm 31 I can't wait that long I, <laughs> here now, I am 76 and that was a different perspective it, you went to Washington John Kennedy was in the White House yeah um, did you get to know Bob Dole in the house uh, just a little bit but Bob was moving on and up uh, already by then I was an active, as was he, I think, uh, uh, player in the Jerry Ford movement. Uh, we uh, we changed leaders, and it was a fairly uh, vigorous little contest. And thus, the younger guys, me, 
Rumsfeld, uh, you know, people like that. Yeah. And I said, we really needed a more active and aggressive leader, and Jerry Ford was our guy. So we did work together in that effort. And I, I, maybe that answers my next question is, was how it, was it mostly a generation? It wasn't an ideological thing as much as a generational. There, there, there was uh, no ideology here because Jerry Ford and Charlie Halleck were both centrist Republicans, mainstream Republicans. Uh, but it was generational. I mean, our guys, we were chaffing at the bit. We wanted to challenge the, the system. We wanted to go after it and, uh, and see some different things. We wanted to start addressing the budget deficits, which is my continuing theme. I never stop. Bob Dole doesn't either, by the way. And, and where were you in the Goldwater uh, campaign? I was at Goldwater uh, because he was, he was the one that was striking chord with young people. Mm. And that was my crowd. Uh, I guess when I ran, uh, I had virtually nobody over 30 supporting me. I mean, we were all kids. And we were the ones that didn't know it was, that, that it was too, you know, you couldn't win. So that was the fun of it. And Goldwater really struck a, a chord with us, uh, that age group. And he was saying, stand for something. Stand for something. Care about it enough to put your neck out there. And I love that. Because you always got your neck chopped off, or at least a lot of Republicans yeah, in 64 I, did. I, it was uh, probably the toughest campaign because Goldwater was running 35% in my district, and I'd gotten elected with 51% in 62. And um, he was talking about selling the TVA? Yeah, or you're talking about uh, abolishing Social Security and selling TVA <laughs> in the heart of my, my district. But um, I just loved him. I respected him so much for his integrity. Uh, I took my billboards the last October in Tennessee's big billboard state. Uh, that, I, we didn't have a lot of money, so we did that, those things. But I took my name off all the billboards and put his on to try to to pull him up didn't help. We got clobbered. Um, I got reelected, fifty-three uh, percent. So huh. it worked okay, but it was hard. And at what point did you decide you wanted to be in the Senate? Uh, probably. And why? In '64, uh, working statewide for Goldwater, I was a statewide chairman. I got a taste of working across the state. Uh, I got excited about building a new kind of Republican Party. That, and we really had a split in the Republican Party in those days. We had the old traditional East Tennessee Republicans, and then the rest of us that were uh, sort of go-word, a fervent uh, yeah. people that really wanted to, to address uh, some of the big issues, and we thought uh, stronger security issues and deficit reduction, federal spending, local control, those were important things to us. And uh, I didn't, I, I had a chance to run again in 66, but Howard Baker had earned that right because he ran in 64 and lost. And I would not run in 64, I didn't think I was ready. So he won that right and he was elected in 66. So I had to wait until 70 when, uh, when my opportunity came up to, to take on Albert Gore. Now, so you arrived in the Senate. Bob Dole was a relatively junior member. That's 
of the Senate. Um, tell me about the relationship that Bob Dole and I think so much alike that it's just sort of a natural alliance. Uh, I can't recall an issue in which we differed. Uh, you know, I'd have to dig into the records, but there was nothing of great consequence that we disagreed on. And it was just an easy, comfortable relationship. Uh, both of us uh, shared values. We both came out of states that had pretty similar values uh, in, in Tennessee and Kansas. Not, you know, Tennessee's not a deep south state. It's more of a rural uh, state with a lot of industrial development in my area in Chattanooga. So the, the, the combinations were, were, were very similar and uh, I just had a huge respect for him because he was a guy that uh, stood for what he believed in. And you never doubted that. You never doubted his integrity. You never doubted his, his, uh, his willingness to, to fight for something. Even if you had to lose, you stood for what he well, Let me ask you something. Because it, it, it intrigues me again. I'm wondering about this whole generational issue. Because, you know, that's when he was being called the, the sheriff of the Senate. You know, the Nixon loyalist who was yeah. prowling around, enforcing. Well, he and I were on know. the team. I mean, I was I was one of the core Nixon guys. Yeah, as was he. And you stood with your guys. You, you stayed well, on the team. And that raises now, say Hugh Scott, who was really kind of a different kind of Republican in many ways, um, partly geographical, partly ideological, but I but I sense also largely generational. Were, were there were there tensions at all within the Republican caucus? Was there a sense that you and the younger Turks were, were really eager to move the party in in one direction, and that there was a sort of resistance? Uh, there was there was a bit of that. Uh, I think uh, it wasn't ideological so much as it was uh, fervor, aggressive fervor, getting into the into the fray. Uh, being willing to challenge the status quo. Mm. Uh, Hugh Scott was a terrific human being, and I grew to love him, uh, as I did uh, people on the Democratic side. I got close to, to Hubert Humphrey, people I had, with whom I had very little philosophical uh, ties, uh, Pat Moynihan later on, uh, people like that, because I, I came to trust and respect their integrity. And if they came to a different conclusion, they'd come to it honorably. That's important to me. And Is that one of the best things about the Senate? That, yes. that you can have those kinds of relationships? Yes. I love that about the Senate. I also think you can do it in the House. It's just a, you have to work a little bit harder at it. But in the Senate, um, I, it never occurred to me to introduce major legislation without a Democratic sponsor. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought about it because it just made sense to me. I mean, I'm not trying to solve a Republican problem. Hmm. I'm addressing a national issue. And I think that's the way we thought. But where the younger guys were in those days in the Senate, we wanted to get more active, more aggressive. We wanted to establish uh, a presence in the country. And uh, we, were, we were all getting caught up in, in the overriding issue. It's not dissimilar from today. These guys, these poor guys that are trying to handle Iraq, we were trying to deal with the, uh, the overriding issue at that time in the early 70s of, of Vietnam. Uh, 
And we said, you know, there are other things that are going on in this country that aren't being addressed. And we need to talk about those and get more active. Um, Nixon was a good president in that sense that he kept bringing up uh, uh, new things that we ought to be talking about. We were saying, let's get, let's get, uh, let's get our running shoes on and get out there and start uh, marketing these ideas. Well, for example, I assume you would have supported all of the Nixon Supreme Court nominees. Sure. Certainly Hainsworth and Carr as well. Sure. Uh, whereas some of the Northeastern Republicans, I think Scott has included at least, I think Scott voted against at least one of them. And, um, well, and some of the, the Margaret Chase Smiths and the Ed Brooks and, and folks like that. Um, yeah. I mean, there was still a liberal Republican there was. caucus. I, I, I guess I can't say I supported all of the Nixon nominees. Carswell was pretty much of a disaster. Okay, yeah. Uh, Hansworth intellectually was, was, a, was a superior candidate in, 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 as, as, as best I knew. Yeah. And I thought that the hit on him was totally unfair and, and frankly uh, biased because of his coming from the South. Yeah. And I thought that was unfair. I don't think Hugh Scott opposed Hainsworth. I think he did oppose Carswell, yeah. if I remember. And I'm not sure that I disagree. <laughs> Carswell was a much tougher yeah. choice to defend. Yeah. yeah. But, but that was Nixon. Nixon would get so <laughs> mad that he would do it in your face to, to sort of <laughs> test the... <test> <laughs> uh, that was not his strongest characteristic. <laughs> what were Nixon's strengths as a president? Mostly an incredible mind. Uh, the guy had a strategic vision, a strategic capability that is really rare in American politics. He saw the big picture. Thus, you know, people give Henry Kissinger uh, credit for the breakthrough of China, but I think at least, at least, at least it was equally Nixon. I mean, it's easier to view Nixon favorably now after we've gone through a few, a couple of decades since uh, the, the Watergate thing. But his strengths were a really good, clear sense of, of the importance of the United States, the importance of our role in the world, the importance of, of establishing uh, alliances that would frankly, break up the old uh, Soviet bloc, and that's why the Chinese thing was so important. He did, his weakness was he didn't care so much about the, the domestic side, and that was, that was troubling for a, a lot of, again, for a lot of the young guys. But we had the advantage of really terrible Democratic opposition, <laughs> and then their choice of candidates. <laughs> and and it made it easy to support Nixon. I was his national youth chairman in 1972, so I uh, I was a believer. He was the one guy that would would come to Tennessee for me. Yeah, and he did that in 1964 when I needed help, and uh, and, and I respected that and I appreciated it and I tried to repay. Did you have much contact with Haldeman and Ehrlichman? Uh, some, but not too much. Yeah. Uh, it would be in in the rather intense political settings. There were a few of us, six, eight, 
that would meet with Nixon and really sort of think through what was happening in the in the political realm. And usually one of both of them would, would be in that, more Bob than, than John Ehrlichman. Uh, actually, uh, Bob Holliman's brother and I were shipmates in really? the U.S. Navy for uh. two or three years, Tom. Uh, so I, I came in with uh, respect for him and his family, uh, which I hold today. Were you surprised by the language on the tapes? I was stunned. That was hard. That was hard. I had to uh, do something I never thought I would do. I had to send uh, the president a note and say, uh, if the Senate has to vote on impeachment, I cannot support you. And I, uh, man, and I had been with him until the tapes came out. I could not believe that he would have countenanced anything as stupid as a ridiculous break break in, much less the destruction of a tape. Well, frankly, I couldn't believe he'd be taping. Yeah. And then that he would uh, countenance the, 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 the things that he did after that, which would, so I thought they were sort of out, out of character, but maybe not. But boy, those were hard days. Well, and of course, that's when Bob Dole was National Party chairman. Yeah. Pretty unattractive job. He, he'd wanted the job, obviously. But well, Bob and I have a, a, an incredibly poor sense of timing. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you may not remember, but uh, at the same time that Bob wanted to be the national chairman, here I was as a freshman Democrat running for and getting elected as chairman of the Senate Campaign Committee. So I was leading up to seventy four. The Senate Campaign Committee for nineteen seventy three, seventy four yeah. for the debacle. Yeah, you know, yeah. You know, I don't know how Bob Dole and I got this defective gene. <laughs> Did you ever compare notes or uh, uh, cry uh, into your well, beer? Or? Well, sure, sure. But we were we were both uh, out there trying to salvage what we could in a horrible horrible situation. We, do, we just got clobbered. How much did the pardon add to your problems in 74? I mean, was it a determining factor in some races, do you think? Or 76 was the pardon. Well, I mean, in terms of those congressional races, the, the pardon came in, in uh, September of 74, the Ford pardon of Nixon. Yeah. And uh, the general consensus has been it just, you know, it was obviously going to be a terrible year but that at that point, Ford had, you know, those those sky high numbers, and um, it wiped us out. Yeah, it was an unbelievably enormous factor. And I, uh, I don't know how you overcome something like that. People were so profoundly angry at being deceived by the president of the United States. I mean, we hold these people up very high. And and it's 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 scary to be an American and know you've been lied to. Because our whole system is grounded in trust. And if you can't trust your leaders, 
we got a real problem. And of course, one of the most endangered incumbents in that 74 cycle was Bob Dole. He spent most of the campaign behind. I mean, do you remember any discussions? Or, or uh, no, I don't. Uh, I just, I, I think, I, I just believed in Bob Dole and his ability to hang in there. A, because he's got such a terrific state, well-grounded and deeply rooted, and rural values are solid. That's, a, that's my bias, and I you just know, trust them. Let me ask you a step back, because there's this notion that, uh, well, some people uh, say it was because of, it started with his marriage to Elizabeth, but this notion that, that he's changed over the years, that uh, that the dole of the late 60s and early 70s is a much harsher, much more partisan figure than maybe a generation later. Um how would you say he's evolved in the in the time that, that you've known him? I think that's baloney. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, you know, we're talking about a friend that I respect. Yeah. But, but, but I know him. I really do. And uh, the Bob Dole that served the people of Kansas in the Congress and in the, in the Senate was never a mean-spirited, bitter person. I mean, he just, he wanted to get to the issues. He loved the process. He was so good at it, whether as an individual member or as a leader. Uh, we can get to, to the times I worked with him as leader when I was in the executive branch, but I, I think where the hit comes on Bob is in terms of, of the quality of some of his campaigns. And in that sense, uh, Bob couldn't engage in the kind of relationship building that made him such an effective right. member of the House and the Senate, uh, where people knew him and trusted him and you would go into a, a to the quiet of a room and sit there and say, now, Bob, i got to get this and you got to get that. Let's cut it and make it happen. Um, and as long as the integrity was intact, you knew you had a deal and you never had to worry about his word or, or where he was going. Um, you tend in campaigns to get so pressured that you can say things that then come back to haunt you. And I think maybe that's that's fair, uh, and it's fair for all of us. But uh, in terms of Bob Dole being a different human being, not so. Huh. Not so. Period. The um, when he was put on the ticket with Gerald Ford, was it a surprise? Uh, Stunned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell me, you, you were bet. at the convention, I assume. Oh, you sure. Were, yeah. Sure. Um, and how bitter was? that Ford-Reagan division at that point? Was it really pretty intense? Uh, I didn't pretty think intense? it you know, I, I should have been a Reaganite coming out of Tennessee, being the Goldwater guy back in the yeah. 60s. But I loved Jerry Ford. I knew him as a human being. I had worked with him for years. I trusted him with my life. I couldn't believe that the Reagan people couldn't wait four years 
let him have his, his time in the sun. He was a good president. He was a caring, decent, honorable human being. So uh, I don't, I didn't think it was a, I, 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 get, I didn't get the sense that it was bitter. But there were those of us who felt pretty strongly that uh, the Reagan crowd was pushing their luck. The Schweiker nomination. I mean, in retrospect, they would have been a much smarter, I don't know if you would have said, yeah, they would have been much smarter to go to you, to ask you to be on the ticket. I mean, in light of, in yeah. light of the Southern delegates that the Schweiker nomination apparently pushed away rather than... He turned them off. Yeah, he did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there were plenty of choices. And was that a John Sears uh, special? Probably. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. They were they they wanted somebody that uh, would uh, obviously go after a state like Pennsylvania. They, yeah. they they thought they had a chance of holding it. And, uh, and they must have thought that Drew Lewis might be persuadable. That. Uh, I mean that he was a significant figure in, the, uh, in, in Pennsylvania, and although he was for Ford, that maybe he could be flipped. Or? I think so. I, you know, that's all. This is assumption on my part. I wasn't part of the uh, sure of that inner yeah. core. The, the Reagan people um, I was. I, I really was interested in in, in the, the the composition of that of that team, other than John Sears, there was nobody other than California. Huh. And they thought they had a... Get the, get the scissors, scissors out. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. No, your point about no one... Other than John Sears, the entire Reagan team was California. Absolutely. And again in 80. Hmm. Pretty much, other than Charlie Black, one or two others. Yeah. Um, the Reagan candidacy was, uh, was a regional candidacy. And his appeal was, was purely ideological. Give me a real conservative. Give me a true blue. Right. Uh, as if Jerry Ford were not. Yeah. And you know, a lot of us thought he was a he was a terrific governor and a terrifically attractive candidate. Probably the best I've ever seen on the Republican side. Certainly the best I've ever seen on my side of the aisle. But the hunger to get get in and take it away from the guy that. It, then really pull the country together. I didn't get that. Yeah. So I didn't like it, and I was pretty aggressive in supporting Ford, and I was able to hold uh, my own state and some others. And, the, and so the discussion about the vice presidency, let me back up because um, I assume you'd known Nelson Rockefeller. I mean, sure. and um, had seen him in action. Remember, were you in the Senate that day? There was a great controversy fairly early in his vice presidency. I think it had to do with the vote on cloture, and, and either he, he failed to recognize 
maybe Senator Allen from Alabama, as I recall. Or there, but there was a, a real brouhaha over uh, he misinterpreted the rules or uh, was seen to be, uh, you know, imposing his own his own views. Or uh, does it ring a bell at all? That, no, I, I remember the, the case. I'm not sure that I was sitting there yeah. at the moment. Um, I find it hard to believe that he was abusing the rules. Uh, when you're in the chair, the clerk or the the, the, uh, the staff, you've got people that really know every dot and tittle of those rules. And they say, Mr. Vice President or Senator, if you're the one in the chair, uh, this is what you have, this is what the rules require. I have no doubt that that was inadvertent. I just, yeah. yeah. Tell me about how, it's funny, I've never really thought about this, how are vice presidents a factor uh, to be reckoned with? I mean, do do different vice presidents have different approaches to uh, to their, not only the formal presiding over the Senate, but whatever relationship they, they try to establish with the uh, Senators? Um, <laughs> I'm sitting here looking at the morning newspaper <laughs> reading about well, Dick Cheney. <laughs> and it's, I got to say, yes, there's some differences. <laughs> because my experience with vice presidents, uh, they don't have a great deal of influence. They can be part of, of, of some sort of a mediation on occasion between factions, usually on their own party side. They can pull people together back in that little VP's office and, and you can have a pretty good conversation and, and work things out. But in terms of uh, raising any ideological cast to the debate, I've never seen that uh, work. They may would like to, but I've never <laughs> seen that happen. And more often than not, it's it's the ceremonial role in the in the in the Senate. The more important role is as as the person sitting beside the president huh. and and quietly counseling. They make a difference there. The uh, uh, to get back to seventy six of the vice presidential selection process, I assume. I mean, from research, I mean, certainly Howard Baker's name was in the uh, short list. And would that have precluded a fellow Tennessean from being uh, considered? Or uh, were, were, was your name uh, mentioned? Uh, yeah, probably by the... my brother. I'm not <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, you know, I... I uh, you have little in inklings of those things, but you don't take it very seriously. You, see, you were surprised when you heard the Dole had been selected. Yeah. Yeah. Not a bad choice. It was just a surprise because uh, the norm is to go for a big state person or something that somebody has great regional consequence. And we were fairly comfortable that we were going to carry that part of the country. So... Uh -huh. But but Bob was uh, was a, a very natural choice. He certainly epitomized the center of the party, and maybe that was 
not a bad thing to do right at that point. Do you think Senator Baker would have liked to have been on the ticket? Sure. Did Dole get, do you think, unfairly criticized for the subsequent defeat? Yes, that was totally unfair. Um, look, we were going to have an uphill battle under the best of circumstances. It was a very hard slog. And I don't, uh, I don't know what could have changed it. I, I, the, 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 the pardon was such a kiss of death. But the, the public reaction, I mean, uh, after the election, as you know, I lost. And, and I ran for national chairman because I needed work. And uh, we were somewhere between 18 and 30 percent in any poll you wanted to run in terms of the Republican Party standing with the American people. I don't care who is your presidential candidate. That is a big load to carry. I used to, uh, we, we even, and this is true, early in the, in the, in the, 77 period, we were so far down that there were a few people who said, well, maybe we ought to just change, change the name of the, America, of the party so that people wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't remember <laughs> who we were. Uh, Mary Louise Smith was my predecessor. She yeah. followed Bond. And she was a, a phenomenal lady with great common sense. And yeah. She gave me my line that I used for the next four years and, and even subsequently. She said, Bill, Tell them that we don't have to change the name of the party, we have to live up to it. That became my mantra for four years as national chairman. We have to live up to what the Republican Party is supposed to mean in terms of its integrity and, and its belief in. Wasn't she wonderful, Mary Oh Lewis. my gosh, I just loved her. I got her. to know her well in Iowa. Oh uh, dear, what, a, what an incredible, good, gifted, decent human being. Yeah, but that's what—that's what she really missed. Um, and yet, even she, even then, was the target for an awful lot of uh, vitriol directed at her. Absolutely. By. Yeah, but, but you know, I guess it goes with the territory. You, you look back in the in, in the eighteen hundreds, the vitriol sure. was much. Yeah. more mean-spirited yeah. than even today. And today was worse than it was yeah. then, I think. Today Maybe it's anonymous, it, yeah. a lot of it. I mean, it can be anonymous. That's true, yeah. and that's that's worse. The, uh, well, now, when you became chairman, again, that's something the Dole had been previously under difficult circumstances. Did you compare notes at all? Did you, did, did he? Uh, I'm sure we did. I don't recall a particular occasion. Yeah. But um, both of us were facing uh, really serious challenges. I, I had an, an, an advantage that he did not have. Uh, he had to carry a White House that was desperately in trouble. Oh. Uh, I had a White House that was an opportunity area because <laughs> Jimmy Carter had come in and things were tumbling downhill. Uh, Inflation was going through the roof. Interest rates were going through the roof. Mar top marginal taxes were 70%. People forget these things. Uh, and we were mismanaged 
by the uh, by the majority that it took total control of everything. When the Democrats had all of it, yeah, and they made a mess of it. So that was that made it a lot easier for me. And uh, you get along well with the Reagan folks as as your approach to 1980. I mean, no, once the no, no, I was <laughs> really constant. Uh, hassle with the with the Reagan folks. Naturally, they wanted me to lean to Reagan, and I thought they were, you know, Californians. You can't say this, but I thought they were smoking something strange. <laughs> uh, I wasn't going to do that. Yeah. Um, I thought he was a terrific candidate, but I thought he had terrific opponents. Yeah. And uh, I was not in the least interested in leaning. They wanted me to have a convention in uh, in Dallas, and I said, you know, if we go to Dallas, it'll be 108, and and, 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 and the women will still come in with their hair all puffed out and wearing diamonds and, and furs. Uh, that's not the am image we want to have for the Republican Party. I wanted to go to Detroit. Really? Because I yeah. wanted to have a, a blue-collar working party image for, for our comeback. And they were furious about that. They wanted me to fund a bipartisan assault on the Panama Canal. My friend Howard Baker was carrying the Panama Canal Treaty in the Senate, yeah. and I wasn't going to do that. Two or three things. So when uh, when Reagan got elected, there were a whole lot of folks ready for me to get out of there. Uh, they even asked me to step down as chairman at the convention, and I said no. And they said, we'll have to beat you. And I said, then count your votes. Because if you if you are shy of beating me, uh, it will be a hit on your candidate for the presidency. So be very sure that you can beat me. And if you can't beat me, you better support me. And three or four weeks later, they, the governor asked me to come out to California and talk about coordinating campaigns. Really? So, yeah. Do you distinguish at all between the relationship, the personal relationship you had with Reagan, as opposed to those around him? Sure. Yeah. Sure. And and, and frankly, uh, within a couple of years after we won the White House back and I was, I'd been in, in the cabinet with him, uh, those relationships got to be much better. Uh, I don't think I'll ever forget a conversation I had with uh, maybe the most meaningful conversation I've had in politics. Net Len Nofsinger came to me after a cabinet session. We'd had a pretty strong debate on a particular course of action, and he asked me to stick around after the cabinet, and he said, I owe you an apology, and I said, what are you talking about? And he said, you know, I opposed you uh, taking this job. I wanted you out as chairman, uh, to, even before that, and he said, uh, nobody in this cabinet has been a better, stronger friend and supporter of Ronald Reagan than, than you have. And he said, I want you to know that I feel that way and I, I was wrong and I, I want you to know I appreciate what you've done. Um, but wasn't that typical of Lynn, though? I mean, what a, was, what a was typical stand up what a, what a guy. guy. Yeah. You know, th this guy was, he was spare. He was special. Yeah. He was a real special. His integrity was just always on his sleeve and never questioned. But you, you never forget those things. And, you know, my uh, minor contretemps with the, uh, with the staff were just that. Yeah. And after the election, it was 
Yeah. You, you said something tantalizing. You talk about the hard uh, sort of intellectual debate that had taken place in the cabinet. Can you refute the, the sort of the popular notion that, uh, that Reagan was a uninvolved uh, bystander uh, to his own cabinet meetings? Uh, yeah. Uh, The Democrats have to believe that because they can't believe that the American people really wanted somebody that conservative in office. So they con they've con convinced themselves that he was a uh, sort of a, a really good-looking, very articulate, uh, very decent, and he was all of those things, of course, uh, person without a great deal of depth. I cannot tell you the number of conversations we had in the cabinet where uh, uh, we would be going back and forth. And you know, when people couldn't agree on issues, it always popped to the cabinet level. That was his rule. He created these cabinet councils where we were supposed to work it out. If we couldn't reach an agreement among those who were affected by the policy change, uh, it came to the cabinet. Well, his rule was state your case, state your case. And then he would state his case. Uh, happened to me on California wine. And there were people that wanted to uh, limit a wine. And he, uh, he said, the reason we've got a problem with surplus wine in the United States is not because of the Argentines or the French or the, uh, or the uh, uh, New Zealanders. It's because U.S. tax laws subsidize every doctor and every lawyer in California to plant a vineyard, and they've all done it. <laughs> so we've got too much wine in the country. The problem is the U.S. laws, not the people in other countries that are growing their grapes. And we're not going to put any limit on it. We're going to try to change the law. And that's the end of the conversation, gentlemen. And he turned to me and he said, Bill, I've guess I was supposed to let you make the case, <laughs> but he said, this one got my attention and I'm not going to have anything to do with this. He said, by the way, in another, in this, I guess, occasion, he said, if anybody ever tells me that I'm supposed to do something because people gave me money, it will be the last word they ever utter in this office or this building or any other government office. Uh, this guy was real to the core. I wish we had more like him. All and the it's time. it's interesting because Dole now, obviously, Dole becomes this pivotal part of getting the Reagan program through. Although no one would suspect him of being an original supply side uh, Republican, uh, more a kind of good soldier. Uh, or well, I you know, uh, I think Bob decided that. This guy had some answers that maybe we hadn't thought about before. Um, a lot of us did. You know, I came out, when I was national chairman, I started advertising for the first time for a national party. And I ran ads to try to establish what the Republican Party stood for to make sure that people knew that it would make a difference. And we had some ads poking fun at the Democrats, the gas ad with Tip O'Neill, but, but we also talked about uh, tax cuts and things like that. When Reagan got in, as I said earlier, 
the top marginal tax in the United States was 70% under Jimmy Carter. People forget how they had gone after uh, people of any means. And that was hitting middle income people, not just the rich. And the country had come to a crashing halt. We just were stagnant. And Reagan said, take the lid off, open it up. Well, Bob Dole could understand that. It didn't take, uh, you didn't have to be a right wing conservative. You just had to be a, somebody that understood a little bit of economics. And he clearly does that. He understands what makes the system work. Do you think there's a little bit of a populist in Dole? Well, sure. Yeah. But I'm going to tell you, if there's not a little bit of populist in any of us, we're, we're wrong. Yeah. You've you got to have a little bit of that core down there that, you know, we do have to reflect the body politic to this yeah. country. And we do have to respond to it. Otherwise, we're a bunch of smart ikes sitting up here telling them how to live their lives. Uh, that won't work. That will not last. And Bob, uh, sure, sure. I love being a little bit of a populist, and it's fun. <laughs> but one well, senses a balanced budget was almost an article of faith with Dole. It that, was that it was, and and how difficult was it for Reagan, who had always been a pretty traditional, uh, you know, in his in his economics, to accept these widening. Deficits. It was hard, but Reagan believed in his core that we we were sloughing, we were sagging as a country in terms of our spirit, in terms of our economic sense. Uh, inflation was eating us up. Nothing was really working. And and he bought the argument, as did I, and I think as did Bob, that unless we get this country back on track, back believing in itself, proud of itself, not just in defense terms, but in terms of our basic instinct as optimistic Americans, uh, that you were not going to solve the deficit by cutting things. You had to solve it by growing, and we'd stop growing. Uh, Reagan proved his point. It's off the side, but I'd be fascinated to know what you think. Should should David Stockman have been fired when? Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. Not just taken to the woodshed. It's fired. Yeah. Was was Reagan uh, disinclined to fire people? Or? He hated it. Reagan. He loved everybody. I mean, this guy was really such a sweet, loving, caring human being. He really did. He was warm. You know, the stories about him and Tip O'Neill, those are real stories. They, they absolutely happened. Get the Reagan diaries. Oh, my gosh, it'll make you weep to have to the sense that we had somebody that loving of his wife that caring of people in the other party in the presidency of the United States. My gosh, how much would we give to have that all the time? Didn't that, in some ways, put Mrs. Reagan in a difficult position, that, that she almost had to be 
his SOB, that she had to compensate for his tendency to think the best of everyone. I'm not sure whether to trust everyone, but certainly to, to give everyone the benefit of the doubt. And let's face it, there's a lot of folks around town who probably don't deserve the benefit of the doubt. Well, I don't know how to answer that. I, I, Nancy Reagan had one priority in her life, and that was Ronald Reagan. Yeah. That was to defend the mind, the body, yeah. and the heart of this man. Uh, and I will tell you, I cannot do anything but respect yeah. the way she did that. Having said that, um, I can understand uh, her and, frankly, others around him. I mean, when Reagan went to Reykjavik to cut that deal with Gorbachev, he had people right in the heart of his circle that were saying, oh my gosh, Mr. President. He was right, but he scared the bedickens out of a, <laughs> a lot of people in terms of who he was willing to do business with. And it turned out, as history has judged, that he was, he was right. And I think it's right to always think the best of people. I mean, that's my life experience. Yeah. And maybe because I watched him do it to such advantage. How, how important was Bob Dole as Finance Committee Chairman? He was crucial. Oh, my gosh. We could not have moved without Bob Dole's leadership. This guy, he is so respected in his, among his colleagues. He, they know him. They know he does not lie. They know he does not game the system. They know he won't say one thing to one person and something else to somebody else. That they, If they got a deal with him, it's a deal. They don't ever look over their shoulder. I, you know, my problem, not my problem, my opportunity was dealing with Bob as chairman of the Finance Committee when I was U.S. Trade Representative. All my trade bills had to go through him. Huh. When I did a free trade agreement with Israel, first we've ever had with any other country, who do I talk to? Bob Dole. You bet. And then Bob says, okay, you need to talk to this and this and this. Uh, and we, we, we could team. But having him there... Uh, with his depth of knowledge and his leadership skills, he was a, he could bring people together and make things happen. Uh, I'm not sure, I don't know, you can't say that something wouldn't have happened if somebody else had been leading the, the finance committee. What you can say is that it, it made it pretty certain that if he was going to be supportive of, of an action, uh, you're going to be okay. And then, of course, but you have so you have the tax cuts in '81, right. and the competition, and before you know it, they're hanging all sorts of things on this Christmas tree, and so, <laughs> and you got these deficits. And in '82, no one wants to take a few ornaments off the tree, and has this thing called Tefra, which is very controversial, <laughs> and it, it must have been a real tough sell to the president. I'd say it was more than that. <laughs> I'm sure it was a test, though. Reagan didn't want to do that. Yeah. And he didn't for a while. Yeah. We, we finally came around to some, some uh, modest shifts back 
recapture some of those revenues. 83 or 84, I've forgotten, but, but either way. Yes, you bet it was tough. Reagan was, I mean, and, and, and both were right, interestingly. Bob was saying, this deficit is blowing. It's just whew, going through the ceiling. We can't live like this. We have got uh, to, to, to cut back. And the president was saying, again, and this is all in the, in the room, you're, you're, you know, you're having this conversation. We've got a depression, not, or certainly a deep recession going on. And 82, we really had not made sure that we'd made that turn yet. And right. Reagan was saying, we're not ready for this. Let's get some momentum back into the economy. Let's get some growth. And then we can take a look, but not now. So both were right. Reagan was right, it was mm -hmm. too soon. Bob was right that we needed to to recapture some of those. Do you, do you have a sense of what their relationship was? Uh, when I was in the room, it was just uh, totally respectful. I mean, they really seemed to, to be absolutely comfortable with each other and you know, they, they trusted each other so much. Did it make things at all awkward? I mean, I, I've never really asked him, having your wife in the White House, in, a, in an important job, um, in all sorts of discussions that might be secret, uh, and, you know, being married to the, to the chairman of the Finance Committee, is, was, was that at all awkward or... You think they? Uh, I never sensed it. Yeah, uh, Elizabeth is unique, and her own person. I don't think you have to worry about anything being awkward. She wouldn't have been involved in anything that she shouldn't have been involved in. And whatever they said at the pillow yeah. wasn't going to go anywhere else. You know that. <laughs> You, you talked about the trade rep, your job's trade representative, and were there issues that you were working on as Secretary of Labor, where you had you and the senator had uh, uh, a lot of interaction? Yeah, I, I needed, uh, for example, uh, we we really had a pension system that was getting awry, and I needed to rewrite those those laws, and it was a pretty contentious issue. Uh, I had to work in the Senate. Particularly, uh, Bob was was after right there. I mean, again, going to somebody that understands how the process works. Mm. I mean, it's just life changing. Uh, people, you know, when you're looking at it from outside, it's easy to say, well, it's sort of chaotic and everything. But inside, it's not chaotic. There's a system there. There's a process. There are relationships that you have to use and build upon. And I, um, you know, I just think we were really lucky that Bob, Bob, is of all things a true parliamentarian. He really understands the Senate. He respects the institution. He knows how it works. He knows how to make it work. He trusts it. He trusts his colleagues, and they trust him. All of that 
makes the, make it possible to get where you want to go. Why do you think it's so difficult to communicate that to the public? There's such a ignorance about both houses, but uh, certainly the Senate. Um, yeah, it's very difficult, and I've known him, you know, for thirty years, and it's I couldn't tell you when a sentence or two sort of capture the essence of what it is about Bob Dole that can, you know, make this institution respond. Um, clearly, there are personal qualities. From what you're saying, is the Senate clearly rises or falls on personal relationships, mm-hmm. for for starters. What else is is needed uh, in a, in a role as majority or minority leader to to make the place work? Yeah. I don't know how many times I've used this word, but I will never overuse it because it is the single most important word along this trust. You can't have a relationship with your wife or your husband without trust being the undergirding element of that relationship. And once you establish that you can trust somebody, then almost all things work. The thing about Bob is that you never, ever, ever saw him do anything to violate that trust. If he was going to take a position different from you, uh, he didn't blindside you. He told you. That's the way those of us that believe in the institution got excited about working there. You knew that you had to work across party lines, you had to work across ideological lines. You had to be willing to listen to somebody and and understand that their life experiences, maybe their education, had led them to a different conclusion and respect that. Bob Dole never questioned the integrity of somebody's uh, having a different conclusion. He said, okay, they came to a different conclusion for for their own reasons. I can work with that. That's how you establish trust, is by understanding that people that are honorable, most of those people are are truly there for a reason. They're honorable. They may be very different in terms of their ideology, their convictions, their background, their experiences, but they're honorable people. And if you listen to them, and he's a good listener, and respect those differences, you then can say, okay, here's where you are, here's where I am. Now, how do we work this out? There's almost a a sixth sense that comes into play, isn't there? There is a sixth sense, and it's a sense that is, I think, granted, and again, this is the thing you're saying, it's hard to explain, but it is granted in the institution. You work there for a while, uh, and even from outside, when I was working from the executive branch, you, you, you get a sense that uh, that process, that there's a little bit of bubbling going on in the pot all the time, and you gotta pay attention, you gotta listen to the vibes, you got to feel the vibes, and you know when when you can move and when you can't. That's it. It, it comes from uh, from really loving the place, huh. which suggests what a wrench it must have been for him to walk away from the place. Yeah. 
even for a shot at the presidency. Yeah, it was. You hate that. Um, now, of course, there's the '88 campaign, and what's what's the background to that in terms of uh, your being involved in uh, in what is the old second campaign for the presidency? Yeah. Well, uh, background is that uh, his campaign was in trouble, and I think uh, Elizabeth talked to my wife and said, uh, "What's Bill doing these days?" Or something to that effect. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was Secretary of Labor. I knew what I was doing. She knew what I was doing. But somehow, uh, the conversation got started. Can you date even roughly? I mean, are we talking, uh, is it 87? Yeah, we're talking late okay. 87. Okay. Um, the campaign was a mess. Uh, the money, had, a lot of the money had been spent with no discernible impact. And... Uh, Bob was trying to be the best senator in Washington and a candidate for presidency, and he can't do it. And I, I, we sat and talked, and I mean, I had, I had met with, uh, the, with George Bush, the vice president. I met with Lee Atwater. And uh, I just decided that Bob Dole's principles, values, and relationship were closer to mine. And, and I would never, ever, ever fault any quality in, in George Bush. But he was a wonderful human being. Was is a wonderful yeah. human being and, yeah. and, a, and, a, and a good president. I just didn't know how to say no to Bob Dole. I'm going to stop us now because I have to change tape. Okay. Okay. Let me ask you first of all. I mean, how do you devise a winning strategy to take on a popular vice president? Uh, serving a very popular president. That, that's a that's an uphill uh, <laughs> venture at best. Uh, right question. Obviously, we didn't have an answer. Uh, we uh, we we tried to draw on Bob's reputation, his strengths, particularly in the Midwest, uh, and. We thought that that the, if we could get Bob out and let people see him, listen to him, that they would sense that strength of character that defines him, that they would come to trust him as, as I did and as we did, and that we had a shot. Um, 
Now, in some ways, I, the, didn't, I wasn't part of the decision for him to run. To be truthful, I'm not sure that I would have supported that decision. So he came to me long after that decision was made, and at that point, I felt an obligation to support him because I believed in him. Still do. The uh, in some ways the calendar favored you because of course Iowa leading off. On the other hand, isn't it true that the victory in Iowa was at least somewhat it wasn't uh, going to mean so much because of Pat Robertson? Or I mean, it's well. First of all, yeah, because it was next door, but yes. also the media. Uh, the story was Pat Robertson beating the vice president, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It took the took. Took the total wind out of our sails. Really? <laughs> Pat, Pat Robinson, oh, goodness. Forgive me for. <laughs> I won't control my tongue, but. Uh, <laughs> Were you surprised uh, by your showing? Yeah. Uh, truthfully, I didn't. I thought he was going to run strong. I didn't think he would run that strong. And I guess that just shows that you can't let your personal feelings govern your judgment because I just could not believe that, that he would run well uh, in, in that state much or anywhere else for that mm -hmm. matter. Right, uh, there, obviously there's a core there. But to beat George Bush, my goodness, vice president with Ronald Reagan. In a state that he had won. Yes, eight years and, earlier, and for for us to challenge George Bush was 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 good enough. <laughs> yeah, you know. So then you know. there comes a very eventful week, and I mean, from from Iowa to New Hampshire, there's a real roller coaster in terms of the perception, the the momentum, um, the pollster apparently telling Dole that basically you've got this. At least the legend is that he, that Worthman told Dole at some point during that week that uh, you're going to win, you're going to be. It looked good. And, and then it just went south. Mm -hmm. Can can you reconstruct that uh, that week at all um, in terms of, uh, first of all, the immediate impact of Iowa, and uh, and then of course the Sununu camp was obviously a significant factor in, in New Hampshire mm -hmm. as well. Well, all of those things are, are there. I, I guess the, the, the story coming out of Iowa was Pat Robertson, which, which obviously distracted so much of what we were trying to do. The optimism about New Hampshire was, we thought, well-grounded. And um, I don't, I, I didn't in, in any wise underestimate Johnson and his capability. His, his leadership in the state was, was obvious and his organization was, was, was very good. We thought that the, uh, the turnout would, would solve that problem. And you also you got some endorsements that week. I think Al yes, we Haig endorsed you. I think Gene Kirkpatrick yeah. endorsed you. Yeah, Al Haig's endorsement didn't mean much, but 
we thought Gene Kirkpatrick did. I mean, I'm, I'm not denigrating Al Haig, it's just I didn't think he had the, the consequence up there that she did, and with the conservative co community. And, and, and we were trying to draw from that, of course. It was just a very bad day in Black Rock. The tax issue. Remember, he wouldn't sign the uh, the no taxes pledge. That's why I was for him. He, he he simply would not do that sort of thing. He was right. George Bush shouldn't have signed it. He was wrong. Yeah, but he was president. <laughs> and then remember, they got the ad, the Senator Straddle ad, onto the air. I mean, the Sununu people went to the New Hampshire stations and. Yeah. Um, could you have responded? I mean, was there time to uh, to respond? Was there a any bit of complacency at all uh, arising out of these, you know, reports that uh, I don't know. Maybe that may be twenty twenty hindsight. I really don't know. Um, whatever we did uh, was not enough. My my own experience. In uh, 50 years in politics, is that a last-minute response is almost never very effective. When you get hammered between the eyes with a two-by-four, and we were, uh, I thought unfairly. The two-by-four being the ad. The ad. Yeah. I think. Not fairly, not honorably, but there you have it. That's politics. And when it happens in the last couple of days, uh, you can scramble and put something together, but it's the damage is done. And I can cite an awful lot of campaigns where I've seen that borne out. So I'm not sure that we could have done anything about it. What was his mood going into that primary? I mean, did he did he believe yeah, I think that he was going to win? I think we, we felt not cocky, but I think we felt like we had a, a really good shot and that that would turn it and we could rock and roll. We were really short of money. We needed a break. Uh, we had spent most of the campaign resources before I got there. And so it was, we were scrounging and we needed something. And instead we got the two by four. It was hard. And then of course the, uh, the Tom Brokaw joint interview with Doe and Bush and stop lying about my record. Did that did the campaign ever recover from, Not really. from that? No, we were down. We were down. It was uh, uh, we we had that one shot in Illinois that uh, might have put a little life back into the campaign, but I think we were whistling Dixie at that point. And about to move south. I yeah. mean, you had Super Tuesday coming up, and uh, yeah. 
was there a debate about getting out of the race? I mean, how how did that how did that campaign end? Horribly. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. What do you say? I mean, we, we took a hit in Illinois and said that's it. We, 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 no money, no hope. Um, you lick your wounds, pack your bags. So we did the best we could. Hurts. Hurts a lot. But again, you know, that's the system. It's what make this country special and different. Winners and losers, pack your bags, endorse the winner, go to work, get him elected. And uh, needless to say, uh, his uh, political career was had a long way to go. Um, what kind of what kind of relationship did you did you have? I mean, did '88 damage your relationship for, in any way for any period of time? Not for me. No. You might ask Bob. <laughs> uh, I don't think so. I hope not. Yeah. Uh, I don't think either one of us thought that the other one didn't do their best. Yeah. I still think he is a very remarkable, special human being. I think he would have been a terrific president. Were you surprised at all when when uh, when he became majority leader? When he uh, when he won election to that? Uh... No, I mean that was people. People look for that kind of leadership. They know yeah. the qualities are there. They've seen them demonstrated time and time again. Do you think it's a job with personal qualities, at least then, were more important than ideological purity? Yeah, but, but remember that despite the fact that Reagan was an active grounded conservative. We didn't have the the bitter divisions that were pushing the party out to its edges. Uh, we've got too much of that now. And most Republicans thought of themselves as Republicans. Back to the Mary Louise quote, we were living up to the party. We were acting out its basic core values and philosophies. And Bob Dole uh, epitomized those better than anybody living. But there's a fascinating paradox here because at the beginning we were talking about your generational kind of upsurge. And, and I look at Dole, particularly in the later 80s and early 90s, in some ways there was this new generation of very activist, very conservative Republicans, many of them in the House, uh, but some in the Senate as well. Mm-hmm. Gingrich would become the face of all that. Yeah. And there, clearly that was a, not a, a naturally harmonious kind of relationship. Yeah, but 
it was a different kind of a thing, and it, it's it's not moderates or centrists or liberals or conservatives anymore. It's economic conservatives and social conservatives. It's a different huh. span than we had until the last, basically the last 10 or 15, maybe 20 years max. And that's testing the party's value set. Don't know where we're going to come down yet. And there's actually this one more group, which is uh, sort of vaguely numbered, but I mean the whole libertarian element, which is uh, clearly uh, light years removed from the social conservatives. Mm -hmm. um, well, that's right. Anyway, but I mean, isn't that, but isn't that the price you pay for being a majority? If you are in this country. In its, with its extraordinary diversity. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the Roosevelt Coalition, it was crazy quilt. It made no sense what was there. And in some ways, That's the right. very success of Ronald Reagan in making conservatism uh, a majority viewpoint also ensured that there were many rooms in the conservative mansion and that at some point there would be strains and stresses within that majority coalition. The way you put that's important. Many rooms in the mansion. When I was national chairman, uh, we didn't have the luxury of worrying about divisions. <laughs> Whether we were 30 percent or 28 or, or 34, uh, we had to recompose the majority. And uh, I was starting programs for, for blacks and Hispanics and labor union members and blue-collar workers and ethnics and, uh, and women, and, and particularly women and young people. And I kept getting this smart aleck comment from someone on the committee, Brock, what are you smoking? You got to hunt ducks where the ducks are. There aren't any ducks out in that field. And I'd say, well, now, if you can show me mathematically how I can compose a party with a majority, and that party is composed of white, Anglo-Saxon, middle-income, Buick-driving, northeast-living males, uh, then I'll, I'll listen to you. But if you can't show me how to get the math, then i got to talk about broadening this party and, and getting that tent big enough so people feel comfortable at it. To me, a political party is a is the place where we connect the individual to the to their to their government. It's the access point. And if we're not bringing people in with a diverse range of views, we're not creating a party that has the capacity to develop ideas because ideas don't come out of one ideology; they come out of the conflict, con con conflict, the, the, the conversation. And what we're not having today is enough of that conversation. The Democrats have got the same problem, by the way. Both parties oh. are struggling for their identity at the moment. And that's bothersome because we ought to be a little more clear about what our core values are. 
Now, I'm more on the libertarian economic conservative side. But for gosh sakes, I couldn't possibly compose a majority out of libertarians in America or economic conservatives or social conservatives. I can compose a party that's got a bit of, of all three, but with, that means there has to be some give and take. Sure. And I have to give on some and then get on some, and everybody else has to bring something to the table. We're not doing that right now, and that's what people are worried about, and it scares them because they don't know who to trust, they don't know who to listen to. If there's, a, if there's somebody out there that is more eloquent on this subject than Obama, I'd like to know who uh, it is. Uh. And here's somebody on the other side that's talking about inclusion and values. Let me ask you two last questions. One is, and maybe, maybe it's not fair, uh, and you don't have to answer it, but I remember sitting next to you at a dinner Couple years ago in Washington, and we were talking. I was talking about my Rockefeller book, and and uh, had come to the conclusion that, contrary to what everyone thought, everyone believed that, in fact, he was very torn about wanting to be president of the United States. And Rockefeller, yeah, and he thought that at some level, Dole entertained some more. The, the identical, but but the, there was there was a, it wasn't just ambition to be president. That there was a it was more complicated than that. Um, how would you how would you describe that? Because there are people. There is a school of thought that says, for example, in '96, that for Bob Dole, of course, he would have liked to win. He was a great competitor, if nothing else, but that the honor of being nominated by his party would at least be consolation for not being in the White House. I mean, the, the, the popular view of most politicians is they'll do whatever it takes to win, that they, they lie awake at night wondering what it is. And, and my sense is that you, you didn't think that was necessarily the case with, uh, with Bob Dole. I don't. Yeah. I don't today. First of all, I know he would not do any whatever it took to win uh, if it violated his basic uh, instincts, values, integrity. Uh, that's an easy call. He wouldn't do it. I, I, I've watched politics for a long time. I think some people run because their heart is in it God is in it, and whatever it takes, they would do. And I don't mean, and a lot of them would not violate their integrity, but they would make any sacrifice necessary to win. I've seen other people run who just want to be. I want to be president. I want to be governor. I want to be a congressman or senator. They're a blight on the system because they have no reason other than that they want to be. And then there are people like, I think Bob, I think Nelson Rockefeller on occasion was someone like this too, and, and a lot of others I've known, Jerry Ford maybe, who want to do 
because they believe that there's some reason to be there and to do that. But they can't do whatever it takes because that would make them do something that goes against the grain. Including becoming something that they're not. That they're not. Because that means that they're doing it for the wrong reason. And something way down deep says, no, no, I can't do that. There's a price they won't pay. Sure. And that's probably who we, we want to elect. <laughs> but they're harder to elect. <laughs> Why is it so difficult for senators, I suppose I'll extend that to members of Congress, to go from the Senate to the White House? What is it about the institution, including, I mean, it's been argued that there's even a lingo that, you know, in some ways the more successful you are, the longer you're there. You speak this foreign language that outside the Beltway at least is a foreign language. I mean, what, but what, what is it, it's been suggested that the art of, of persuasion on the Hill is very different from sitting in front of a camera and, and arguing to 200 million people. What, what, what do you think of the qualities that... Uh, paradoxically, may make you successful in one job and almost disqualify you, uh, at least the way it's there come are, to be seen. There are a number of things. When you're in the Senate, you really do sit and reason together. You may do it in committee. You may do it in your private office. You may do it over a beer. But you talk to a human being and say, you know, Joe, Mary, Sam, uh, we're not addressing this problem. You got an answer that's different from mine, but we're not addressing the problem until we find some way to get to it. Now, what do we, what do we need to do to make that happen? Can you imagine somebody saying that on television? What happens in American politics today is if you can't make your point in 12 seconds, maybe 15, you're not going to get on the evening news. If you don't make the evening news, you're not important enough for people to pay attention to you. So a lot of things are driven by that process. One, you oversimplify. You have to, by definition, speak in sound bites. It is an insult to the American people that we treat them as if we could give them a solution to health care or education or the defense of America in 12 to 15 seconds. They know better. But that's the way they're getting their messages. We have 10 people on a stage debating the Republican nomination or the Democratic nomination and they have no time to have a serious conversation. It is an exercise in irrationality, and it is inexcusable. And it is a threat to the survival of a free, of a free people. And it is just wrong. I, I get off my high horse here. But, but what happens is the Senate, in the Senate, and to a degree in the House, to a large degree in the House, 
is that we don't do that. We don't speak in sound baits because nobody's going to talk to you if you speak in sound baits. You sit there and you say, Pat Moynihan, I got a problem, and I know you care about it. What do you think we can do to get to get from here to there and solve the problem? And that conversation began with me loving Pat Moynihan as a human being, as somebody I can trust with my heart and soul, and saying, I know you care about this country. I know you care about this issue. Let's find an answer. And you deal with that. You can't do that in a presidential campaign. I wish we could, but you can't. And even the presidential debates one-on-one -on -one in the fall are, 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 are pretty much soundbites. So. Is it fair to say, maybe here's an oversimplification, but one, one way of defining the difference between governing, in effect, or legislating, and running for president in the modern media age is, on the Hill, success is judged by identifying differences and narrowing them. Yeah. Whereas running for president, you're rewarded by, for exploiting differences. Sure. Sure. Look at what we do at our candidates. Both parties. Both are complicit. And both are exercises in immorality, unethical behavior, in the way we talk about each other. We draw inferences that lead to you con to, to conclude that you're questioning their basic morality for taking a position rather than the fact that their life experiences led them to a different conclusion. Wow, that's wrong, that's dangerous, and we do it, and we do it every single day, and we're doing way and way too much of it. And it's breaking down the process of government, even the Senate. It's harder to govern today than it was when I was there. The House more so. Somebody has got to kickstart a movement back to human relationships. And frankly, I would give a lot to have any presidential candidate saying, I'm tired of this. Let me talk to you about how I'd like to sit with the other side. How do you get the Republican nomination when you say, I'd like to sit with the Democrats and find an answer? I mean, that's, that's just irrational. But I'd love to hear it. Oh my gosh, would I love to hear two people running from each party saying, if I get the nomination and get elected, I am going to get down to the Senate. I'm going to sit with Ted Kennedy, and I'm going to sit with the Bob Doles or the whoever. Do you think that's a kind of President Dole would have been? Yeah, because Bob Dole knows how to work within that kind of a conversational setting. I mean, he, he's a problem solver. The country's got issues. We have people that are hurting. And part of that is something the government can do something about. Not all of it, but some of it. 
Okay, let's see what we can do to work work uh, uh, an answer to that. Honey Beck. How do you think he should be remembered? Uh, as somebody that gave everything that he had to his people, to his country, never, never left a shred of his integrity on the floor, held his values all the way through, and made an enormous difference. It's the guy that, that made the system better by being there. Not a bad epitaph. <laughs> Listen, thank you so much. Thank you. This is, I, I, I mean that this has been absolutely one of the very best interviews uh, by a... Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you.